Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. Psalm 147, 4 and 5, verse 4 says, He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord, and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we will look at God's word together. Our Father, we just now come before your word, and we submit ourselves to the authority of your truth. Lord, your truth is absolute, and it is the guide by which we live our lives. There's a rule for our Christianity and how we live each day. And Lord, it's encouragement, it's comfort as well, as we look to it to see who you are and what you do in our lives each day. And so we thank you for this revelation that you've given us of yourself and of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have salvation through his blood, that we have forgiveness of sins, and that we are brought into the family of God through faith, and that you keep us there, and we have the promise of eternal life through him. And Lord, now as we meet together and look into your word, I pray that you would just prepare our hearts to receive the message that you would have for us. Help us to have open understanding and clear understanding of what you want to teach us today. And Lord, use me during this time that your word might be, go forth, that it might be spoken clearly, that your message might be proclaimed, and we might be challenged by you today. Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity to meet and to study your word, and we ask for your blessing during this time now. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. In Psalm 145, it tells us about how great our God is. Lost my notes. Excuse me for one second. <laughs> I will be glad when we get back to normal functioning, so I will be back in the mode of normal functioning. All right. In Psalm 147, I'm sorry. Psalm 147, the Bible tells us about God's greatness. In verse 5 that we read this morning, it says, Great is the Lord. And I want you to think about this question. How great really is God to you? We say that phrase, how great is God, or how God is, or great is our Lord. But how great really is God to you personally? Do you think about the greatness of God? What do you really think of Him? Now, one of the primary reasons that God gave us the Bible is to reveal Himself to us, that we can understand, at least in part, who he is and what he's all about, what his plan is, what his plan is for each of us, okay? So we have the revelation of God, his message to us in Scripture. And when the Bible tells us phrases like verse 5 says, great is our Lord and great power, his understanding is infinite. I think sometimes we get in the mode of reading through things like that and say, yeah, yeah, God's great. And we really don't take time to think about the significance of those statements and what it really means. And this morning, I want to take some time and look at some of the Psalms and some other verses of Scripture that just talk about God and His greatness and what He does for us so that we can kind of refresh ourselves in, in how we perceive God and what we think of God and understand His greatness a little bit more. So when we look at these verses, verses 4 and 5 in Psalm 147, starting out, it, it says, first of all, in verse 4, He telleth 
the number of the stars. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of science lesson to help put this in perspective so that we can understand what the scope of this statement is, okay? Now, when God says he tells the number of the stars, it doesn't mean just the stars that we can see. There are billions of stars out there, most of which we have never observed, probably never will observe from Earth. We can't see them. We don't even know about them. And yet it says God knows about every single one. So it's not within the scope of what we see. It's within the scope of what God knows is there. Okay? And then he goes on and he says in, um, in verse 4, He calleth them all by name. And it's not just that he knows how many there are, but he has named every single one of them. And you think about, and I'm, I'm talking hundreds of billions of stars. Scientists have basically told us that in our, gal our uh, galaxy alone, the Milky Way, there's about roughly 100 billion, not million, billion stars in just our galaxy. And then they estimate that there's about 100 billion galaxies. So start multiplying those numbers, 100 billion times 100 billion, and we start to get the scope of how many stars there are. Now, I have trouble remembering my six kids' names, okay, <laughs> on occasion. And then you look at this, and God not just created, God doesn't just control, but he named every single one of those 100 billion times 100 billion stars. That, that's immense. Okay? So just in the scope of our thinking, it's way beyond what we even would be capable of as human beings. In verse 5, it goes on, it says, the Lord is great. And again, I think we use that phrase too lightly many times. What does it mean when we say someone is great? Okay? Growing up, I, I watched a lot of baseball. I played a lot of baseball. And I remember watching baseball players on TV, and I think, man, they are great. But when the Bible says God is great, it's not the same as what we do, what we mean when we say somebody is great. You know, if somebody is kind to us, we say, oh, that was great. You are great. That's nothing compared to what the Bible means, what, what it says God is great. Okay, great in the scriptures, when it refers to God, means there is no better. It, it, it is, as far as you can go, it is in, in goodness, in majesty, in everything that is positive and that is good. That, that is what God is defined as. He is great. There is no greater than him. And in fact, it defines it a little bit. In the next phrase, it says his understanding is infinite. So God is as great as great can get, and that greatness is infinite greatness. There's no limit to it. Now, in our minds, we think, okay, how great can great be? There's got to be this point at which we say, well, we're measuring God's greatness, so he arrives here. And yet the Bible says, no, his greatness and his goodness is infinite. That means as much as we can understand, God goes beyond that. And so it's understanding that what we understand as greatness is not even a drop in the bucket compared to what God's greatness really is. So the Bible says God is great. His, his understanding is infinite. Okay, that phrase, understanding is infinite. Let's take the, the smartest person on earth and we'll multiply their knowledge and their wisdom. Let's just take Solomon. We'll multiply his wisdom by a million. And he's 
in last place compared to God. Not even in the same race. God's understanding is infinite. God understands things that we don't even know exist. God understands things that we could never even think of. And there's no end to it. You know, if, if God were to write down everything that he knows, it would never stop. And it's not that God continues to learn. He doesn't need to learn because he already knows these things. Now, in our lifetime, we have 50, 70, 100 years sometimes for some of us to grow, to learn, to start to understand, to gain wisdom. And yet, in those 100 years, if we are blessed to live that long, we have just a scrap of what God understands. And understanding is so limited because we are limited creatures. We are finite creatures. So God, his greatness, his understanding is infinite. It goes beyond anything that we could ever even imagine. And that's what this word great carries. God's infiniteness in everything about him. So his understanding is great. His power is great. He is great. And when we think about those statements, I think all of us should take the time to really contemplate the character and nature of God within those statements. It is so much more than what we probably ever imagined. Because we can never imagine or think about or understand what God actually is. Let me give you some perspective based on these verses that I read this morning. Verse 5, talking again about the stars. I told you there's 100 billion stars in our galaxy and probably 100 billion galaxies with as many or more stars in them. And you have planets, moons, asteroids, comets, and other astrological bodies included in all that. And God created all those too. And he knows all those things as well. And he, uh, Earth is just a very, very, very small speck compared to the scope of the rest of the universe around us. Let's just focus in on Earth, okay? We have our solar system. We have our nine planets that orbit around the sun. As far as space and distance is concerned, how far away is God? How big is God? I mean, those are interesting questions when we think about God's greatness. How big is God? How far away is he? The Bible tells us God is always near. He's omnipresent, so he's not really far away. And yet, his presence is in heaven. So where is heaven? Well, that's where God is. Okay? And we know that someday we will go there. But, and yet, although he dwells in heaven, he also dwells in us in the form of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that God is everywhere. David said that in Psalm 139. If I ascend up to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol or in hell, thou art there. You can't get away from God, so he's everywhere. But just for our limited minds, let's see if we can think about the scope of our universe. And then that will give us kind of a little bit of understanding about the scope of God's greatness. Our solar system is about 26,000 light years from the center of our galaxy. Now, our solar system is our sun and the nine planets. Our galaxy is the Milky Way, which is comprised of a bunch of other solar systems. So our solar system is 26,000 light years from the center of the, of the Milky Way galaxy. Now, 26,000 light years means it would take light 
26,000 years to travel from where we are now to the center of our galaxy. That's not other galaxies, that's just our galaxy. So traveling at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, it would take 26,000 years to arrive at the, at the center of our galaxy. I think that's why no one has ever gotten there, because we would go through, what, four complete histories of the Earth before anybody would be able to arrive there? And no one will ever live that long, except God, of course. Okay? So when we calculate the math, I know David will appreciate this, um, if you calcul calculate the math, a light year, 186,000 miles per second, it's about 6 trillion miles, 5.88 trillion miles to be exact, or close. And our, our Earth is 93 million miles from our Sun. It takes 8 minutes for light to get from the Sun to the Earth. I'm not going to give you a quiz on this, okay? I promise. I'm just giving you these facts to put everything in perspective. So when we talk about 26,000 light years, just the center of our galaxy. That's an immense distance. And that's just our galaxy. And God created our galaxy and all the galaxies that make up the universe. Now, there's other galaxies. And other galaxies don't just exist by themselves. Other galaxies also can cluster together. In fact, scientists have discovered at least one named the Virgo Cluster... That is 55 million light years away from our galaxy. 55 million light years away. That means that you would have to multiply 55 million by 5.88 trillion to get the number of miles where that Virgo cluster of galaxies is from our galaxy. If you want the number, it's about 320 sextillion miles, which means it would take 55 million light years to get from the Virgo cluster to us. Now, the scientists can't know that it's there unless they have seen light from that galaxy. If that galaxy is 55 million light years away, that means it would take 55 million years for light to get from that galaxy to ours. The Earth and creation haven't been around that long. How could it happen? Because when God created light, he said, let there be light, and there was light. When God created those galaxies, he put them there, and the light was already there. Now, it continues to emanate light. But the God who created all of that made that light instantaneously available for people to see. We didn't have to wait 55 million years because God was the source of all that. In our Milky Way, scientists say that one new sun or one new star is born every year. Okay? And there's evidence to indicate that on an average, most galaxies will produce about two new stars or two new suns every year. Now again, remember, 100 billion galaxies, roughly, let's just take that estimate. That means that there are approximately 200 billion stars born every year. Some of them die. Some are born. That's the cycle, just like people. 200 billion stars born every year. Imagine if you had to name that many children. Okay? 
Now, Dave and Bethany are expecting a child here in the next couple weeks, and the huge discussion in our house has been for more than a month what this baby's name is going to be, and they still haven't decided. <laughs> Imagine having to name 200 billion children a year, and yet God does that with the stars. Not does he just name them, but he creates them. Okay? That's just a little bit of a sense of his power and his understanding, his wisdom. In verse 4 of the, chat, of the psalm we read this morning, it says, God knows all the stars by name. David wrote that psalm. They didn't have the astronomical information that we have available to us. They didn't have telescopes back then. They couldn't see galaxies far away like we can today. They didn't have a Hubble telescope that goes out into outer space. And yet David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote that God knows and names every single one of those stars that are out there. Trillions and trillions and trillions of stars. And he created every one. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that takes care of us, that provided his son for our salvation. Okay, now when you think about the size of the galaxy, the number of stars, the multiple billions, hundreds of billions of galaxies that are out there, and how much space they have to take up. One of the nearest galaxy clusters, remember, is 55 million light years from where we are, and yet there's more out there that we haven't even discovered yet. So imagine just the vast expanse of what's out there in outer space. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 1 that God breathed out all of that with his word. And all of that exists in him. He doesn't exist in reality. All of that exists in him. So the question is, how big really is your God? How big of a God are we talking about? That gives us a little bit of scope of the God that we're talking about. But if you really understand that, then that brings to mind the question, who are we to ever question him? How can man shake their fist in God's face and say, I don't want you, or I don't need you, or even if we believe that he exists or that we are submissive to him, we go to him and say, how could you do this in my life? How could you allow these things? Because you messed up. It's supposed to be a whole lot better than this, isn't it? And we go back to verse 5 in Psalm 147, and it says, his understanding is infinite. Now, I'm going to take a poll this morning. I want you to raise your hand if this applies to you. How many of you have infinite understanding. Okay, how many of you have enough understanding to know and understand everything that's happening in your life and why? Okay, that was your life. What about everybody on earth? Do you understand that? See, we question God. We come to him and say, God, I don't understand. Why are you doing this? I, I want it this way. You just don't get it. And we forget the scope of the God that we're talking about and talking to. His, his wisdom, his, his power is infinite. Be way, way, way beyond anything that we could ever approach. 
And yet we have the dolls of questioning in our lives. See, we need to make sure that our perspective of God is not limited by our pathetically inadequate understanding, not just of creation and of God, but of ourselves. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows everything better than we could ever understand everything. In the fact, the God that we serve is the master of the universe so expansive that we can't even see a fraction of it. Even with our most technologically advanced tools, we can't see even a drop in the bucket of all that God's created out there. And we have a great big God who created, he sustains everything, and he takes care of us. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd want any less of a God than what we've seen in Scripture today that was in charge of my life and in charge of making sure I was okay. And when we question him, we make him less than what he really is. Now, we've talked about how big God is, the expanse of the universe, but even greater than this is that this great big God is not so big and not so preoccupied with the universe that he's not concerned about us as individuals. If God names each star by name and cares for each star by name individually, then he does the same for people because we're worth to him a whole lot more than the stars in the heavens. And how we respond to him, how we live our, our lives each day, really says something about whether we believe that or not. I want you to turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, very quickly. Again, this is David, the psalmist, writing about the Lord again. About the God that we are talking about this morning. Psalm 8. And starting at verse 1, we're going to read down through verse 9. This is what David says about the Lord. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Who has set thy glory above the heavens. Not in the heavens, above the heavens. God's glory, God's glory is above everything that we just talked about. Verse 2, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. That means that God can take care of any enemies that we have. Verse 3, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? What's, what David is saying is, when we look up into the heavens and we just look at the stars that we can see, in the vast expanse of the sky and the heavens above us, and we look at that and we think, well, God's in control of all of that. How could he be mindful or be thinking about me, one little peon, a speck on the earth that's a speck in the universe? How could a God that big think about me? That's the question David asks. Verse 5, he says, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. He has made man a little lower than the angels. He has crowned him with glory and honor. We are made in the image of God, Genesis tells us. We are in God's image. No other part of creation can claim that. And so we literally are crowned with glory and honor in God's eyes. 
Verse 6, Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, and hast put all things under his feet. Now, just the creation of the earth, remember in Genesis chapter 1, it goes through the six days of creation. And at the end of the six days, he created Adam and Eve, and put them in the garden, and he told Adam and Eve, have dominion over all these things. That means control it, use it for beneficial good, manage it. In fact, he gave Adam the job of naming all the animals. So, God created all this, and then he picked out man, that one part of creation, to manage all of what he just created, at least as far as this earth is concerned. I mean, that's a big enough job for us. We still haven't gotten that right. Forget about what else is out there. So, God has put us in a very special place as people. Verse 7, All sheep and oxen, yea, the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Now here's that phrase again, the greatness or the excellence of God. And David's saying, we are nothing as mankind, and yet you've picked us out specifically. You've crowned us with glory and honor, made us in your image, put us in control of everything you created on this earth. Why do we deserve that? And the only thing we can attribute to it is that God is great. See, it's in our thinking, it's very easy for a great big God who rules the universe to ignore insignificant specks of people that live on one little planet in the vast expanse of the universe. And yet, that's exactly what David says God has done. He's paid attention to each and every one of us individually. And he knows us by name, and beyond knowing us by name, the Bible tells us he knows how many hairs are on each of our head. Now, that's a little easier for him to manage for some of us than others, okay? But he knows, and he cares, even about those minute details of our life. So we have a special place in the heart of God, and God has considered mankind literally the most important species, enough that he has sent his son so that he can fix the problem that we created when we allowed sin to come into our lives. That's how much he cares about us, individually. Salvation is not a universal, everybody's going to be saved thing. Salvation is offered individually to each of us. Christ becomes a savior to each of us. And so he cares about us individually. Now I want you to think about that. God did all of this, provided a plan of salvation, because the God who created the vast expanse of the universe and everything that's in it, who breathed out stars out of his mouth, who names and controls every single one of them, billions upon billions upon billions of stars and planets and other bodies up in the heaven. He desires our company and fellowship. He wants us to be able to commune with him individually. He cares about our lives. He cares about our needs and he cares about our relationship with him. That's the God, remember, who created and controls all of this. He wants you individually to have a relationship with him and to fellowship with him. 
And as big as God is, as much as he controls and creates all of that that we just talked about, the God who hangs the stars like we hang Christmas tree ornaments on a tree, he cares about the minute details of our life. He cares about the minute workings of each one of us, both physically and spiritually, emotionally, mentally, everything about us. He cares about every minute detail. I'm going to send you back to the end of Psalms again. Go to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. I'm going to read 18 verses out of it, but I'm just going to read them quickly and give you just a comment on some of them. Psalm 139. Starting at verse 1, again, the psalmist says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Now, do you believe that phrase? I mean, we can stop right there. That could be a message all by itself. Thou hast searched me and known me. God knows us. That's what it says. Verse 2, thou knowest my downsetting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. And the word, the phrase afar off there means... Not that God is far away, because he's not far away. God is with each one of us, right? But from a physical perspective, how many of you can read the thoughts of the person that's sitting right next to you? Right? Now, that's a temptation for married couples to go, oh, yeah, I can read their thoughts. And as soon as you say that, you're wrong. Okay? And your wife will let you know that, guys. All right? Because we can't read each other's thoughts. We might think we know people well. We might think we know what they're thinking. But not necessarily. We really don't know the inner workings of people unless they tell us. And guess what? Even if they tell us, we don't know because they don't know themselves. But David says, you know everything about me. You know my thoughts. Even though you're not right here. You're not sitting next to me. Although he is. Verse 3, thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. There's not just thoughts, but everything that we do. Verse 4, for there's not a word in my tongue, but lo, Lord, thou knowest it all together. So he knows everything that we say and that we're going to say. Verse 5, thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. That means God has protected us all around us. His hand is on, on us to, keep, uh, to keep, take care of us. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Now, there's the attitude that we should have when we think about how God cares about us. You know, it's easy for us to say, well, I'm so glad God loves me. I'm so glad God takes care of me. We should say that. We should be thankful. But to understand the depth and the intricacy of the works of God's hands that he does to protect us, to care for us, to provide for us, we don't know half the beginning of that. Okay? That's why David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high for me. I cannot understand it. Verse 7, whither shall I go from my spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy hand shall hold me. If I say this, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike unto thee. You can't go anywhere and get away from God. Even if you wanted to. God is always wherever you are. 
Verse 13, for thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. That is before we're born, by the way. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Look at verse 15. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lower parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in my book, in thy book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. What David is saying is, God you knew everything about me before I even existed. Before there was a person that is me, God already knew everything about that person that is me. Verse 17, how precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. He's talking about how God thinks about us. How precious are thy thoughts unto me. How great is the sum of God's thoughts toward us or about us. Each one of us. Look at the next verse. If I should count them, God's thoughts about you and about me, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. That means God thinks about us all the time, individually. All the time. And David is saying, God's thoughts about each one of us is more than the number of the sands on all the seashores and in all the deserts combined. Anybody count the number of grains of sand? on the seashores of the earth and in the desert? Anybody know? David says, that's how much God thinks about you. And so this is the God that we worship. The God who created the vast expanse of the universe, and yet his thoughts toward each one of us are continually on us every single moment that we are alive, and even before we're alive. That's the God that created us. That's the God that we worship. Let me take you from the vast expanse of the universe to you. What about the microscopic workings of your body? Okay? How many of you could explain how every single function in your body works? Come on, you live it every day. You should be able to explain it by now, right? There were three scientists several years ago who were given the Nobel Peace Prize for Chemistry. I didn't know this, by the way. This is something new I learned. But they discovered something about the cells and how cells destroy unwanted proteins. And they called it, at the beginning of the process, a kiss of death. Okay? By the way, that phrase, kiss of death, if you think back to Judas and Christ, you get the idea. Christ was marked by that kiss. Well, each human cell has about 100,000 different proteins. And I apologize for all the science, but it gives us the perspective, because God cares about the science, too. Okay? There's 100,000 different proteins in each of our cells that carry out different jobs. Some of them are specific jobs, like being catalysts to different um, uh, reactions in our body. Other ones act as signals and literally mark certain things for certain functions. Okay? And those are mar what they call marking proteins or, or marked proteins. The proteins mark, or the, the functions in our cells mark certain things 
either for misfunction or in this case actually for destruction. So these proteins in our cells mark certain things for destruction that shouldn't be there. And these three scientists found this process that where a cell or a, or a protein marked for destruction, once it's marked, then the cell acts or starts this action where literally parts of the cell gang up on this marked protein and chop it up, destroy it, almost like a wood chipper, literally. So that's going on in your body right now. Cells are dying, cells are being produced, and certain proteins and parts of things that aren't supposed to be in you are being destroyed by your cells all the time. If that process didn't happen, we'd be dead long ago. Okay, Our bodies couldn't handle that. But God has created this microscopic wood chipper, if you will, in each of your cells to destroy all these things that are harmful to you. God has created in you a self-defense system in which your cells literally chew up harmful substances. Now, I'm, I'm glad I learned that, okay? I didn't realize that was happening. God did. He created it. But he cares about every single cell in my body. And he causes the functions of every single cell of my body to do what it's supposed to do. On another scope, think about your body as a whole. Okay? When you are born, you basically are one cell. And from that comes everything else, all different parts of you. Okay, I don't understand. I know there's science behind it, but even scientists can't explain how it all happens. How that one cell starts to divide, and then each cell that's produced after that takes on its own characteristics and becomes what it's supposed to become. I mean, how do they know which is the heart cells and which one is the finger cells? How do, how, how do they not get mixed up? God has ordained. He's, he's orchestrated all of that. Our DNA is literally the, the, the code that God wrote for each one of us to define each one of us as individuals. And so God not only takes care of what we call the big picture, all of this surrounds us. God takes care of the minute little picture that goes on inside of each of us. And God cares about not just the physical function of our body, but he cares about our spiritual well-being individually. He's a God of greatness, and he's also a God of minute detail. And that's the point. So the God who created the universe is not too big to be concerned about you and about everything that's happening in you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, and going on, it says, this is Paul writing, he says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of saints and light, it's talking about the salvation we have in Christ, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now there's the plan of salvation, all that God has done for us to save us, so that we don't have to die in eternal death. Verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him, what's the next phrase? And for him. 
God created it to show himself. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That last phrase, if you translate that, it comes out to be, and by him all things are held together. So not only did God create all of this and all of this in us, God holds it all together. Without God continuing to exert his power over creation, everything literally would just fall apart. Now, we use this phrase, fall apart. Okay, when somebody just loses it and they fall apart emotionally. What does that mean? We've lost perspective of who God is and what he's doing in our lives. Because with him, nothing falls apart. All things are held together. That's what, first, uh, that's what Colossians 1 says. And it's not just the physical things of life, the physical things of this universe. It's us. Our emotional state, our mental state, our spiritual state, it's all held together in Christ Jesus. One more science lesson. Uh, many of you probably know what electromagnetic energy is. It is the magnetism or the attraction that a body that has mass exerts on other bodies around it in the universe. Okay? God has created that law of physics. And so anything that has mass is attracted to anything else that has mass. Those things that are smaller are attracted to those things that have more mass than them. And those things that are larger attract other things to them. Okay? The question then is, why do our planets not fly out of their orbits from around the sun? Because God created electromagnetic energy that keeps our planets in orbit around the sun. A perfect distance for us to be able to live on Earth. If we were off by a few miles one way or the other, we'd either freeze to death or cook to death. And yet God has ordained the perfect orbit for us to be able to survive on this earth. And it's all held there by literally God, but he uses this magnetic energy. Now, if you remember your elementary science class, when we studied atoms and molecules, atoms, as far as when I was in school, it's advanced beyond that. Now we have... Uh, different particles, stuck up, uh, I can't remember, quarks, which I didn't learn about in school. But an atom basically is a nucleus with electrons going around it. Every atom is made up that way. What keeps those electrons from flying off out of their orbit and from that atom falling apart? The same electromagnetic energy that keeps the planets from flying out of orbit. See, God's hand is in everything. Now, science can say, well, yes, electromagnetic energy that really holds everything together. But who created it? Who sustains it? Where does the power come from to keep that going? It's all God. See, the point is this. Many people, and including many Christians, have built in their minds this picture of God that fits in their little box. I think God is this. I want God to be this. I think God should do this for me. I think God should allow me to do this. And we've created a God that isn't the God of the Bible. We've created a God of our own imagination who fits in our box so that we can understand him, so that we can be comfortable with what we want him to do. And then when God does something outside of our box, we get upset. 
Yeah, big question. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? That's putting God in box. As I said before, the real question should be, if we look at it from God's perspective, why does God allow anything good to happen to bad people? Because we're all bad, and yet we all experience goodness from God's hand. We have to remember that God is everything. And perspective, just from what we've looked at today, and that's just a drop in the bucket again, we're nothing compared to that. We don't know anything. We can do nothing, really. Everything we are, everything that we can do, everything we say, comes from God. He knows it all. And so when we put that in the perspective of the fear of God, what does it mean to fear God? I don't think we understand that phrase anymore. Go to Isaiah 40. We're going to close with this. Isaiah 40. Verses 12 through 26. Because Isaiah asks these questions about God to help us understand God a little bit better. Isaiah 40, starting at verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in the balance? I mean, just think about that verse alone. God's measured the waters, all the waters that exist in the palm of his hand. Okay? He measured out heaven with a ruler that he could hold in his hand. Now, remember the expanse of the universe that we were talking about? God measures it like we measure a piece of paper. Um, he knows how much dirt there is in the entire earth. He's weighed all the mountains of the earth down to the microgram. He knows exactly how much each of them weighs. Verse 13, who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him. With whom took he the counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding. Who is God's teacher? He didn't have to be taught. He doesn't have to learn. He knows it all. That is him. That is his character. In fact, the next verse 15 says, Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket or drop of a bucket. The picture here that Isaiah is trying to create under the inspiration of God is when they would go to a well and draw water out of the well, and as they hoisted the bucket up out of the well, the water would slosh around and a little bit would spill out on the ground. And that little bit that would spill out on the ground, people didn't go, we just spilled that drop. Okay, they was like, oh well, that's nothing, move on. And God, in the Bible says, the nations like that drop that spilled out. They're nothing. And he says, it accounted as a small dust of the balance. This is the dust of the air that settles on the scales when they would measure out things. And the dust was so fine. And you've seen it at home. Hopefully you don't have too much of it at home. Okay, but that, the dust that settles out of the air, and it would settle on the balance. Does it really weigh that much? Or would it change the weight of what they were trying to weigh? No. And he says, that's how God sees the nations. Verse 16, Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. If we were to try to offer God, and this is in the perspective of the Old Testament, a burnt sacrifice that would be enough, he says you could probably burn all of the trees of the forest of Lebanon, which were immense at this time. They were known for their massive trees of, of cedar and fir. 
They were famous all over the world. In fact, they used massive trees from Lebanon to build a temple. But he says, you took all that wood, and then all of the animals that you could gather, that wouldn't even be close to becoming the, the, an acceptable sacrifice to God. Verse 17, all nations before him are as nothing, and are counted as to him less than nothing in vanity. To whom will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare to him? The workman knelt at the graven image, the goldsmith spread it over with gold and cast with silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeketh to him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. He said people don't understand God, so they have to put this image in front of them. The rich people use gold and silver. And then he says um, in verse 20, the poor people that you have don't even have enough money to buy an offering, that's that oblation, they go and find the best tree that they can find, and they carve an image out of wood because they don't have enough money even to buy a metal one or have a metal one made. And so man is desperate to have this God that we can see. And he says in verse 21, have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of heaven, and the inhabitants there are, there are, are as grasshoppers, that stretches out the heavens as a curtain, that spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither. The whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? And then God again references at the end of this passage, the heavens. The next verse, he says, lift up your eyes on high. Behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names, by greatness of his might. For that he is strong in power, not one failed. So here's the question. How big is your God? And that question has to be asked whenever we, especially when we look around us and we say, God, I don't understand. Why are you doing this? You messed up. God, I don't understand. Why are you allowing what's going on in the world today? I don't understand. Who are we to question God? We are puny little specks that really should mean nothing, and yet we mean everything to Him. As we close, I just want to ask you this question. How would you live if the President of the United States was your best friend? And his whole purpose in life was to help you get what you needed and provide for you. I mean, we would be like telling everybody, right? I know the president. He is my friend. I know him personally. He gave me that. He gives me this. He makes sure I have everything I need. And yet as believers, we have a situation even better than that. Because we don't have the president as our best friend who provides for us. We have the holy, almighty God of heaven who created everything that we just talked about and controls all of it, and he provides for us everything that we need. And how often do we talk about that? How big, really, is your God? How do you live to proclaim the greatness of God in your life? He has singled us out of his creation. 
And Malachi actually says um, that he has called us his jewels. God puts that value on each one of us as his people. We are the most special parts of his creation. And he is doing and will continue to do everything that needs to be done in order to make sure that we are taken care of in every aspect of our life. That's the God who created the universe, who numbered the stars, who named the stars, who controls all of that, and he cares about us. See, when you consider the standing that we have as God's children, as the favored and chosen ones of the God of the universe, over everything else in creation, God values us more than anything else that he has created. How can we ever be afraid? How can we ever fear or be worried? And the Apostle Paul answers that question in Romans 8.31. He says, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? We have the God of heaven at our side. We have the God of heaven providing for us and taking care of us and protecting us. Why do we fear? The question is not about God's desire or ability to take care of us. The question is why do we so often fail to reverence and worship him as he deserves? Because we don't understand the greatness of God. We don't think about it. And if we did, I think our whole perspective of life and our reactions and our responses to things that happen in our life would be totally different. Our God is both great and good. The creator and master of the universe cares intimately about you and me as individuals. What more could you desire or want? Lord, thank you for your blessing of the truth that you've given us about yourself, that you care for each one of us. Lord, it's overwhelming, as the psalmist said, to think about the expanse of the creation, and yet you do love each one of us individually. You care about the most minute functions of our lives and our bodies every single moment of the day. You think about us all the time, and yet we fail so often to worship you and to think about you as we should. Lord, help us to understand your greatness in a new way so that we truly reverence you, that we lift up your name, that we praise you because you are worthy, and that we can become the salt and light that you want us to be as we do that, proclaiming the greatness of God to those around us. Lord, challenge our hearts now, and I pray that you would embed this truth in our our souls, so that we might dwell on it, that we can meditate on who you are and what you're doing. And that you might be glorified in our lives as you want to be. And we'll praise you for what you're going to do in each one of us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.